Hello, and welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to hit the follow button. Also, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy today's episode. All right. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to this week's episode of the One Conversation podcast. Today, my co-host Brianna and I are joined by a guest who is incredibly versed and passionate in the work we do here at Live Islands Free, um, is Delia Franklin. Delia is a nurse with hands-on experience in the world of DV and SA and is an author of her new book, Domestic and Intimate Partner Violence, A Holistic Perspective. And before we dive in, we just wanted to preface this as always with a quick content warning that we will be addressing the dynamics of abuse and statistics behind these very real stories and experiences of survivors. So please do be advised as we embark on this very special conversation with our resident expert in the studio with us today. Today's conversation is an excellent segue into our content that will be focused on um, DVAM all of September, September October, my apologies, um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So without further ado, let's welcome Delia. Hello, Colin and Brianna. I would like to thank both of you for allowing me to participate in your One Conversation podcast. I believe that Live Violence Free addressing domestic abuse during Domestic Violence Awareness Month is such a vital step and part of the ongoing educational processes for professionals, lay people, and society as a whole. Plus, I perceive that including diversity in voices discussing this critical subject matter is such an important aspect in understanding, responding, and preventing domestic violence. Domestic violence is a multifactorial, complicated global problem that has serious consequences for so many individuals. In the United States alone, it is estimated that domestic violence claims the lives of 1,500 to 2,000 women annually. Our government releasing the first national action plan to end domestic violence is a positive step in a direction to assist with prevention. It is well accepted that prevention strategies are more effective with the increased incorporation of educational processes, and that was part of my reason base for formulating domestic and intimate partner violence, a holistic perspective. Thank you so much. So, Delia, we always start off with a few fun questions before diving in, um, just to give us and the listeners a little bit of context, just to get to know you. Um, so our first question is, if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Wow, superpower. I have never been asked that question before. I guess if I could possess a superpower, it would be the ability to eradicate specific problems. As a nurse, I would cure all diseases so there would be no more suffering in the world related to health problems. And as an advocate for domestic and intimate partner violence survivors, I would completely eliminate abuse and discrimination globally so everyone could live peaceful lives. Those two issues being addressed would bring about some pretty incredible changes in our world, assisting people from all walks of life. Thank you. And moving on to our second fun question. This is one question that we actually ask all of our guests. So we like to see, uh, compare, not to, for any reason, of course, but just to see uh, how folks answer this question. Okay. If you could sit down and have lunch with anyone throughout time, whether they're living, no longer living, fictional, non-fictional, who would it be and why? Yeah, I thought about that one for a little while. And then, then I came up with that I would want to have lunch with God um, because I have so many questions, concerns, and lack of understanding about our world and why everything transpires in the fashion in which it does in life. 
I think there was probably some meaning behind most issues and events that occur, but some situations in life just make no sense to me um, that occur in the world. So I guess I would be conversing with God to obtain clarification for my own comprehension in regards to specific issues. I love that answer. That's kind of like the ultimate the ultimate um, who to sit down with. Uh, I, I should have answered that myself on my episode. Um, so Delia, we know from our conversations over email, from your book, um, that you have over 40 years of experience in the healthcare industry. So we would love to understand a little bit more about your life, your background, what led you on the path to doing the work that you do now, and ultimately what led you to deciding to write your own book? Yeah, um, in the medical field, I was a licensed practical nurse for 14 years prior to obtaining my registered nurse uh, licensure, and I have been employed in that capacity since about 1996. The majority of my career has been in the long-term care industry as a gerontological nurse, but I did work as a psychiatric nurse for 10 years in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, and in nursing homes, I have approximately seven years of experience as a director of nursing. Um, the long-term care industry, um, especially with COVID, has been going through some um, interesting changes. Um, so, yeah, it is um, kind of um, it's, it's a beneficial field to be in, um, helping the elderly also. As an advocate for domestic and intimate partner violence survivors, I have volunteered in crisis centers assisting women in recovery and understanding the tactics of abuse. I believe many people that have experienced violence incorporate um, some type of processes into their life to assist other people. In the process of making individuals aware of my book, I have conversed with women from all over the globe, from the United States to Canada to the United Kingdom to New Zealand to Tobago. And it is a central theme in all countries that survivors are working to educate and impact change in their communities. Um, some of the women um, that I have um, been able to make contact with um, have had some pretty serious injuries um, from domestic violence. Um, I believe the way the problem of domestic and int intimate partner violence is perceived and handled in our country needs to change. And this perception has been formulated through personal experience and visualizing how domestic violence cases are addressed. Our current legal and social systems view intimate partner and domestic violence as isolated incidents of physical and or sexual violence, when in reality, intimate partner and domestic violence are ongoing patterns of behavior that often escalate in seriousness. Course of control abuse is present in 86% of domestic violence cases and is described as a course of oppressive behavior grounded in gender-based privilege that includes violence, intimidation, limiting resources and outside support, degradation, exploitation, manipulation, isolation, and control. The Massachusetts Medical Society incorporates course of control into their definition of intimate partner violence and elaborates on how the behaviors can be sporadic or chronic and can occur over months, years, and even decades. Only five states in the United States, California, Hawaii, Washington, Maryland, and Connecticut, have criminalized course of control abuse, leaving many women and children vulnerable to this type of abuse that can extend for decades in people's lives. Dr. Evan Stark is a leading expert on coercive control abuse and states, the women in my practice have 
repeatedly made clear that the most serious harms that they have suffered involve how their partners have kept them from fulfilling their life projects by appropriating their resources, undermining their social support, subverting their rights to privacy, self-respect, and autonomy, and depriving them of substantial equality, preventing a substantial group of women from freely applying their agency in economic and political life obstructs overall social development. Um, I know also that there are some other states that have um, bills um, introduced into legislature um, attempting to get um, it criminalized in their states, um, but it has not um, been effective in some of those states. Um, and then in regards to other countries, I think the United Kingdom was the first country that did criminalize course of control. Um, and then I do know that, uh, like, uh, Australia is addressing the issue also. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and all of the work that, that you've done on that subject. I am glad that we're in California here and that California is one of the states that has criminalized coercive control, but we are so close to the Nevada border and Nevada not having that criminalized. You know, we always have those issues that come up on the state line. And that's just another example of how that can be really difficult if someone, um, you know, is living in California and then the abuse is happening in Nevada or things like that. It, it can get messy. And when laws have different states that don't criminalize all the same things, it can really be difficult to get those survivors the justice that they deserve. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a um, huge problem. And unfortunately, you know, as we're going to discuss later, you know, the way people perceive um, the problem has a lot of impact on women's and children's lives, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So in your book, uh, you do talk a lot about the cultural ideology shift about domestic violence, sexual assault and inter -partner intimate partner violence. Um, that needs to occur in order to improve the quality of life for women and children within communities in the United States. This is largely our mission here at Live Violence Free and why our agency <clears throat> is so essential to our regional communities. Could you expand on that a little bit about that cultural ideology shift? Yeah. Um, in domestic and intimate partner violence, a holistic perspective, a comprehensive examination of abuse and the components that keep the problem prevalent within society is presented that assists readers to more fully understand the impact of interpersonal abuse globally. Unfortunately, our legal, medical, and social systems can be contributing factors to the continuation of domestic abuse. Often women and children have no social support systems when contemplating or actually terminating an abusive relationship. And this dynamic leaves women and children vulnerable to homelessness, poverty, employment loss, ongoing health problems, escalating abuse patterns, and suicidal ideation due to the continuation of interpersonal coercive control tactics. Our culture in the United States and the culture in other countries impacts perceptions of domestic and intimate partner violence. Culture with regard to abuse is the collection of learned beliefs, traditions, principles, and guides for behavior that influences how individuals respond to domestic and intimate partner abuse. One culturally um, held belief system is that domestic and intimate partner violence are private problems versus social and public health issues. And this perception can influence not only how victims respond to violence, but also how they are treated by the institutions they turn to for assistance. 
also cultural and social tolerance of abusive tactics as a normal method of resolving conflict as a means to control or discipline intimate partners or as a usual part of child rearing as a risk factor for all types of interpersonal abuse. Additionally, community attitudes about violence against heterosexual women or the LGBTQ community are an important barometer for gender relations. They illustrate whether victims feel confident to seek help and whether harm doers are likely to be excused or held to account for their actions. Attitudes that trivialize, excuse, or justify violence against heterosexual women and the LGBTQ community, as well as attitudes that minimize the impact or shift the blame from the abuser to the victim, are labeled as violent supportive attitudes. And I mean, that process itself where they, they shift the blame, that happens more than, than what people probably really know um, in society. When influential people express violent supportive attitudes or a substantial number of people hold them, it can create a culture in which a behavior is not clearly condemned and at worst condoned and encouraged. These attitudes, in effect, allow violence to continue to exist in the community, upholding all types of sexism and patriarchal belief systems. Violence-supportive attitudes can then lead to social disapproval and community alienation of the victim and effective impression management strategies for the harm-doer. Impression management is a tactic utilized by harm-doers that entails manipulatory behaviors of lying, gaslighting, gossiping, and rumor-spreading to groom a community through destruction of the victim's reputation. These held cultural ideologies within communities about abuse can subsequently determine the course of women's and children's lives with regard to this major public health problem. So the community's perception and the way that they handle these problems, and I'm not going to say it's every community throughout our country, but in in some of them, um, it, it, it ends up working really adversely um, for women and children in those types of communities. To assist in decreasing statistics, there needs to be a cultural ideology shift that represents an intolerance of abuse. Studies have demonstrated that a climate of acceptance and tolerant beliefs and attitudes towards violence constitutes some of the most important sociocultural factors for its occurrence. And these concepts are present in many of the multiple causal models used to explain domestic and intimate partner violence nowadays. So, you know, I, I feel that through educational processes, you know, so that people more fully understand what dynamics come into play, not only when, you know, people are within that abusive relationship, but also when they leave the abusive relationship it is something that needs to be more focused on so that society as a whole can understand um, essentially what people are being put through. Absolutely. That's I it's everything you said really resonates with um, what my role and and me and the executive director Chelsea have been focusing on is this one conversation campaign, which is designed to specifically target the stigma and the misconceptions and the taboos that go into, you know, how we perceive survivors of DV, of SA and, and how that functions and really making sure that the community is able to provide that support um, to survivors um, just because it, it is, like you said, there are, you know, whole communities can be groomed, um, you know, in these situations. So it is important that we kind of get out there and educate. And that's largely what Brianna does. And she's, you know, really great at teaching and doing pre- prevention in our schools and our local communities. Um, so I just love 
you know, everything that you got into there. Specifically also that you mentioned the LGBTQ community. Um, as I myself, I, I'm a gay man. So uh, I just want to say thank you for sharing all that. And I wanted to applaud you about how in your book in chapter nine, you kind of break apart the history of gender inequality, sexism, heterosexism, patriarchy, religious beliefs that kind of color our current global understanding of this large issue of DV and SA and IPV. Um, so my question to you is, you know, as a LGBTQIA plus identifying man working in this field, I'm so interested to hear more from your perspective about how, you know, as you say, cis patriarchy continues to systemically oppress survivors and prevent them from getting the help that they need. Yeah, that whole chapter is focused, you know, specifically on culture and gender and that how that contributes to the perceptions of um, DV and IPD and um it also contributes to, you know, adverse consequences that um, can occur with women and children um, that are dealing with those types of issues in our lives. But many people perceive that patriarchy is still grounded in belief systems within our country, enforcing heteropatriarchy, that is the dominant idea by the system of society or government that men hold power and women are largely excluded from it. Male gender hierarchy is the underlying element of patriarchy, it and it supported its subordinates, excuse me, and oppresses women in both the home and society. Cis-heteropatriarchy further establishes that cisgender heterosexual men sustain the highest power in society, establishing oppression for all women, non-binary people, and LGBTQ individuals. It is well accepted that sexism contributes to patriarchy, which is defined as the discrimination, stereotyping, and prejudice against women on the basis of sex. Monosexism refers to discrimination against bisexual individuals. Cissexism encompasses the transgender population, and heterosexism is the prejudice against LGBTQ people. There are individual, systemic, and cultural layers of all types of sexism that can assist in sustaining the prevalence of intimate partner and domestic abuse within countries. Culturally influenced gender or sexual orientation violence is considered discrimination. It is abuse directed at a woman or an LGBTQ individual because of their gender or sexual orientation, and it affects these individuals disproportionately within society. According to Ruth Glenn, CEO and president of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, as a society, we don't talk about domestic abuse because our societal structure is still rooted in heteropatriarchy. The socialization of men within society and families with regard to heterosexual companionships can lead to imbalances of rights and power, thus perpetuating abuse utilization and establishing hierarchical patterns. In the context of domestic and intimate partner abuse, cis heteropatriarchal belief systems can encourage the mistreatment of heterosexual females and LGBTQ people. These excuse me, belief systems can impact LGBTQ individuals even more adversely because a cisgender-held belief as the norm within society highly encourages discrimination. Health, sexist, cultural ideologies then can also subsequently determine how communities and countries address violence. So people's belief systems, you know, in regards to, you know, power and balances uh, within communities and countries also contributes um, to domestic abuse and intimate partner violence 
Um, so the fact that, you know, Ruth Gwynn, who is, you know, the president of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, still perceives that patriarchy is well established in our country, you know, kind of affirms that that is part of the problem of why there isn't as much resolution um, as should be, you know, for the problem. Absolutely. Delia, another thing that you discuss is how children frequently become a core tactic in harming mothers post-separation, harming a person's relationship with their children. They might weaponize the children, belittling their partners in front of the children. There's so many tactics of abuse that can involve children. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, in the book, I do have um, a whole chapter that's specifically dedicated um, to children and and abuse. And then also I do um, touch up on uh, the post-separation abuse in some subsequent chapters in the book. Um, so I, I feel like it, that topic itself is pretty covered. Um, post-separation children are one of the few tools left that a harm doer can utilize to still inflict abuse upon the primary target. Indirect victimization of children refers to the effects of a secondary experience of abuse that can increase the risk of direct abuse. The harm doers' abusive behaviors are not specifically directed toward the children, but the children either witness abuse of other family members or are co-opted by the abuser to hurt the primary victim. Harm doers typically have distorted perceptions of the primary target and can perceive that destroying the victim-child relationship is healthier for the child. People who batter are too destructive in their thinking processes, and children are an invaluable tool in their quest to maintain control. These abuse tactics then can subsequently lead to parental alienation and parental alienation syndrome. Parental alienation is defined as when one parent discredits the other to a child or children that they share, and parental alienation syndrome is when parental alienation tactics destroy the other parent's affectional ties and familial bonds with their child or children. There are different levels of parental alienation that can occur in mild, moderate, or severe forms. Severe parental alienation is demonstrated when the primary abuser has a psychological mission to destroy the previously healthy and loving relationship between the child or children and the primary victim. There is clear derogation of the alienated parent by the harm doer and by the child or children. Abusers utilize brainwashing, programming, and hostility that facilitates the child or children to believe their false realities. The child and children or children are both a weapon to be used against the target and a tool to make the primary abuser feel emotionally complete. There are several motivating factors for parental alienation syndrome that include feeling betrayed or rejected, fear, anger, jealousy, revenge, insecurity, and money. Parental alienation syndrome is considered to be a form of child abuse because... It robs children of the security of the bond they once shared with the primary victim. It embeds in the children's minds falsehoods about the target that are injurious to their own psyche and their sense of self. And the process of aligning children against the victim involves threats, manipulations, deprivations, and can even include physical abuse. The subsequent child's psychological and physical symptomatology that can develop from the harm doer's behaviors are why social, medical, and legal systems need to be well-educated about the tactics of abuse in order to effectively intervene in domestic and intimate partner violence cases. So when you get 
the courts involved in these issues and, and they don't even want to recognize, you know, that there's um, abusive behaviors that are being utilized in the relationship, um, then, I mean, you're essentially left with no interventions to try to protect children um, to these other harms that can happen. Um, and, and literally, I mean, when you're brainwashing a child, it can psychologically damage them. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, th I thought that stood out as like a really interesting piece of, of what you're writing about. And I think the listeners could find very helpful. Um, speaking of other things the listeners might find helpful, I saw you also mentioned um, the DAIP power and control wheel, which I think was a wheel specific to some of the issues you were talking about. But for some of our listeners who don't know about this, this you know really brings me back to my orientation here at the Balance Free, learning about, you know, about DVSA and, and, you know, just the history of, of the work behind it. Um, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about for our listeners, what the power and control wheel is and how you've used this in your work and in writing your book. Okay. Yeah. The domestic abuse intervention project based out of Duluth, Minnesota devised the power and control wheels to assist in visualizing the abuse tactics of coercive control that establishes hierarchy for the harm doer and oppression of women. Many times coercive control abuse entails low level physical violence that does not leave scars or other injuries, but definitively establishes submission, power and control within a relationship. I personally perceive that giving people a visual tool to look at increases understanding of the patterns of abuse, because sometimes you can explain something to people, but it's difficult for them to comprehend if the individual has not directly experienced the circumstances. The device power and control wheels bring all the abuse tactics into a clear visual focus for training purposes within society and for educating survivors. Because so many people, when, when they think of um, intimate partner violence or domestic violence, you know, like I said in the beginning, it, what, it, what they think of is, is physical and sexual violence. Um, they don't engage in their minds all these other abuse tactics, such as using children, using the court systems, um, using people within the community, you know, belittling um, the victim and that um, type of behavior. They don't bring all those tactics you know, into the picture for them. So I think by using that in my book, and then also, you know, um, domestic abuse organizations using that tool, you know, it, it presents a much um, clearer picture for people in understanding all of the tactics that are involved with this problem. Um, I do know that um, there's been people, you know, within the media and then um, other things that I've read that, you know, want to um, change that and, and make it so that it is inclusive of all genders. Um, but I know um, through talking to the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project once um, with getting permissions to use their educational materials in my book, that they said that they would never make it gender neutral because all of their educational processes are from working with um, female victims and with male offenders. And they feel that um, some of the course of control abuse that's utilized is not applicable to a male victim of um, domestic violence. So that's why they, are, they won't make it gender neutral. Um, 
The Domestic Abuse Intervention Project Post-Separation Power and Control World demonstrates how the abusive father's past abuse and its effects support the post-separation tactics of using the children as well as the institutions and systems that the person has engaged. These dynamics allow the harm doer to use the children as tools in a system of tactics that enable his power over the primary victim, even when they are not together and even if the person is under a court order not to be in contact. A truly controlling partner is not going to let the victim leave and be free. This person will walk hard to ensure others see them as the victim of the survivor's behavior, not vice versa. The batterer intends to punish, if not destroy, the survivor to maintain their own sense of power and control. Abuse by proxy is a term that defines the utilization of other institutions, systems, and institutions to continue to cause harm for the victim. If all else fails, the abuser recruits friends, colleagues, mates, family members, the authorities, institutions, neighbors, uh, the media, in short, third parties to do their bidding. Third parties are utilized to control, coerce, threaten, stalk, retreat, tempt, convince, harass, communicate, or otherwise manipulate the primary abuser's target to maintain power and control. And I think there's a lot of people, too, that, that don't really realize that all abuse is about power and control. That's, that's essentially what it's about. Um, and, and the fact that they don't have that knowledge base, I think, is what leads to a lot of misperceptions about the problem. That's so interesting that Duluth is not, uh, could we say, not pursuing um, making the, the power and control excuse me, power and control wheel uh, for males who are victims. That's so interesting because like you said, it is all about power and control. So there are tactics that are being used in any domestic violence relationship, no matter how the victim or perpetrator either identify. So that's really interesting that you had that feedback from them. Yeah. And then also like um, Dr. Evan Stark, you know, he also says, you know, with coercive control abuse, he said that that's not really uh, applicable to the male gender either, because I mean, females don't have that much power within society that they can make all of those dynamics transpire for a male. Whereas the male gender has more power within society and they're able to cause more harm. And I also address in my book, you know, the, the societal position of the abuser is also a factor that comes into play. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're, you know, leaving an abusive relationship and the person that you're leaving is like president of whatever, or CEO or whatever, or a judge or a lawyer, you know, or, uh, you know, a high official police officer or something like that, there's going to be more dynamics that go into play because they're in a high position within society and they have power and control through their position too. Yeah, we recently, it's actually an active court case uh, in Alpine County right now where I work. And it was a case where the perpetrator is male and he had actually broken a bone on uh, the victim's body. So it was a pretty a serious case of physical domestic violence. And there was, of course, some emotional that went along with that also. But in his court defense, you know, he was working with his lawyer and he had a lot of colleagues. I don't know his what he did for work, but uh, friends and colleagues wrote letters of like a, a character defense for him saying like, oh, but he's such a good guy. Oh, he has never done anything like this before. They even brought up like things he accomplished in high school. And I think this man is now in his 60s. 
uh, mm-hmm. just to really display like, oh, but this man's character is this, this, and this. And so he shouldn't face charges for breaking this woman's bone because he's such a great guy. And thankfully our judge saw right through it and said, uh, no, we still have broken bones here. But that just shows how people try to really use like, you know, sometimes it can be absolutely hard to believe that someone you wouldn't think would do something like that did that. But we never know people's lives. We never really know people. And so that's not a reason to not believe the victim or not believe that they should face uh, charges for what they did just because they're this prominent member of society. Yeah, but I think I, I've reached the conclusion that I, in, in my mind, um, the legal system is not about what is right and what is wrong. The legal system is about um, who can manipulate the best. You know, when one of the cases in my book, you know, the um, attorney that was representing the abuser tried to make the case that it should be thrown out because the victim consented to abuse. And, the, you know, it, they tried to uphold it, but then it got sent on to a, a higher court, and the higher court is like going, you can't consent to physical abuse. You know, they're just no. like, that's not even logical to argue that. Why are you even arguing that point of view for that case? But but that's what the attorneys try to do. They they manipulate. So to me, in my mind, it's who can manipulate the best. That's that's how they make their decisions. Unfortunately, we do see a lot of that. Yeah. Which is sad for the victims. It really is. Absolutely. Yeah. So we try to support them along the way and have them, you know, there's a lot of talk of restorative justice lately as far as like what the survivor feels like they need to have happen in order to feel justice or to be able to heal and move on with their lives. Uh, So maybe the, not the resurgence, but the emergence of uh, more topics of restorative justice, maybe that will help us at least help the victims out a little bit more. So after this conversation, uh, we've definitely covered a lot today. And something that we do at the end of each of our episodes is we transition into a meditation to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves, especially when we are in this work and we face these difficult cases and sometimes frustrating criminal cases. Uh, So often it's important to take the time and take care of ourselves so that we can continue taking care or helping others. So if you are in a position where you're able to participate in our meditation at this time, just encourage you to get comfortable wherever you are. If that means sitting or lying down, uh, whatever can make you comfortable in this space right now. And I want you to just start paying attention to your breath. We're not going to really change what our breath is doing. We're just going to pay attention to it. And just notice how your body is inhaling and exhaling. Maybe if something got you riled up in this conversation, your breathing might be a little bit more rapid. Maybe your breathing is more shallow. If you haven't, go ahead and... Gently close your eyes, 
or you can gaze down at something that won't distract you. Now we're going to start scanning our body, just really paying attention to what our body is telling us today. Are you holding tension anywhere? You can start from the top of your head, scan all the way down to your toes, pausing at any point that might be holding some tension. If you are paused on that point in your body <clears throat> where you're holding <clears throat> tension or stress, I want you to visualize that you're breathing into that portion of your body. And on your next inhale, I want you to transition to our meditative breath. So that's breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. And let those exhales sink your body a little deeper into relaxation. If any thoughts come up, any worries, any concerns, just let them pass by. All that's important right now is breathing in, breathing out, and taking care of yourself. Thank your body for all it does for you every day. Take a moment to thank yourself for engaging in this breath work, taking this time to center yourself and be mindful. On your next inhale, I want you to breathe in some positive energy. Exhale any anxiousness or stress. We'll do that again on this inhale. Breathe in positivity and exhale anything you need to let go of. On our last big breath in, fill your lungs and hold it for three seconds. And let it out. If you want to, you can pause the podcast episode here and stay in this breath work. If you're feeling like that fulfilled you for today, I invite you to start bringing your body back into the room. Resume your normal breathing. Open your eyes. Might have to blink them open a little bit. Stretch or do whatever movements you need to do to wake yourself back up. Come into the room. And I hope everyone enjoyed that moment for themselves today. Thank you, Bree. That was amazing. You're so welcome. As we close out today, Delia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, all the work you've done to support survivors, it, it definitely shows. And thank you for helping to get that education out there through your book and all of the conversations that you've had with people on this topic. Before we go, do you have any last bits of advice or anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. In closing, I would like to say thank you very much uh, for listening to this podcast. And I would like to encourage all people, communities, and our government to work on increasing educational processes in our country to assist in decreasing instances of abuse. 
domestic and intimate partner violence are not acceptable behaviors, and we need to shift our ideology to a belief system that encompasses victim safety and better accountability in order to effectively protect women and children that experience domestic abuse in the United States. Awesome. Thank you so much, Delia. And um, again, listeners, we will have everything we talked about here today linked below so that you can find Delia's book and give it a read. Um, Thank you so much, Delia. Um, After all the email tag, I'm so thankful and we were so excited to have you here. Um, It's been so amazing to connect with you and hear a little bit about how you got started and about how you decided to start writing your book. Um, And just thank you to all the listeners out there for tuning in. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode of One Conversation.